Welcome again to our frequent podcast called Wear Many Hats, inspired by Ethan Hawkey. Throughout the year, I, David Punter, the Business Development Director for Hawkey Cleaning and Support Services, shall be interviewing prominent facilities management and subject matter experts across a range of industry market sectors. It is these people with their wealth of knowledge and experience that will inspire the next generation of young professionals. Our objective is to share our guests' stories and experiences to help motivate, engage and inspire others into the industry. Through Wear Many Hats podcast, we hope our listeners will gain new perspectives, insights and learn about strategies to develop their careers in facilities management or procurement business. It gives me great pleasure to introduce James Sinclair. And you're from James? Uh, I am a director at Verisk Maplecroft. Thank you, James, for for joining us today. Um, So without further ado, um, it leads me to my first um, set of questions um, that I would like to ask you, James. So, James, I want to understand a little bit about your journey and how you entered into a career in procurement. Uh, well, I mean, it's, a, it's sort of a long, tortuous journey, and uh, I'm not entirely sure that I work in procurement. I work in sustainable procurement and human rights, which is a sort of sub-genre, I suppose. But, um, yeah, what we, I mean, if I start about where we, what we do now, and then I kind of work backwards, I don't... That That's might, great. Is that all right? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so what we do at Maplecroft is essentially two things. We provide um, industry-leading leading, uh, sustainability data. Uh, looking at everything from human rights and sustainable procurement to environmental matters to governance issues to political risk to country risk and we uh, this is a data set we've been building for over 20 years which is really sort of methodologically deep and sound uh, and we have clients all over the globe that that uh, subscribe to that data set in order to be able to understand their risks better so when they're thinking about uh, what their supply chains look like what their operational footprint looks like how they can do better from a, uh, an environmental perspective, from a human rights perspective, they use our data as a sort of first port of call. Okay. And then um, people like me, as sort of subject matter experts, come in and help advise those companies and take that data to embed it within their companies and think about the process of business transformation that's needed in order to make sure they're compliant, uh, or not just compliant, but they're, they're going beyond compliance with the new human rights and environmental due diligence laws, which is very much my sort of area of expertise. So business and human rights uh, and HREDD stuff is very much my kind of bailiwick. Okay. So journeying back then into your, uh, before you got to the where you are today, um, uh, I understand you read at uh, King's College so, yeah, is that right? Yeah, I mean, I suppose we're going back that far. Yeah, so, uh, I mean, <laughs> that's how far you really want to go. I mean, I, I left school at 16. Okay. Um, this is what we like, the bit of right. the gritty stuff. Yeah, exactly. James. Yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, with no qualifications at all. I mean, okay. I, and I'd like to say that was just on account of being a little bit thick. Uh, but actually... Uh, I had a I had a bit of a, a bad run of it in my in my teens. So various issues sort of came together, and I wanted to to leave uh, home and and and, uh, and school as quickly as I could. So I went out and made my way in the world. So it wasn't running away, joining the circus. James. Not quite, not quite. Although it has felt a bit like that since. Um, and uh, so yeah, I I have I worked in various sort of manual jobs, driving trucks, doing scaffolding, um, you know, working in warehouses, etc. Um, and then sort of as I turned twenty, I and I was also playing drums in a rock band, which we'll maybe come back to at some point. But uh, then I, I turned twenty, and I, I realised that I had something resembling a brain that I needed 
do a little bit more with. So I ended up enrolling in a college course uh, okay. called, called an access program for adult learners. And I discovered a taste for it. I suddenly found myself, um, you know, absorbing all of this this literature and this this learning that I I kind of denied myself or had been denied to me for many years. And I kind of I just threw myself into it. And so so very quickly I I decided this was going to be my 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 future and um, ended up getting a good enough mark on that course to go to York University. First okay. Of all. Uh, to study philosophy, politics, economics, the the dreaded PPE that everyone now you know, thinks thinks ill of, thanks to Boris Johnson and David Cameron, etc. But um, I love that degree. I have to say, it was such an interesting sort of broad ranging um, introduction into you know the way we're governed and all that sort of stuff. So I, I absolutely love that and and had a great time at York. Uh, so that you were in your twenties then? Right? Yeah, I was twenty-two when I went to York. Yeah, okay. Um, and I left uh, with a decent degree and got a scholarship to go to law school, which I did uh, initially at York and then in London, um, just around the corner from here in Chancery Lane. Uh, and got another scholarship to become a barrister uh, because by this point I sort of got up a bit of a head of steam and, and thought, well, you know, why not? Um, and ended up doing pupillage here in London. Uh, and then for various family reasons, I ended up moving to Jersey in the Channel Islands um, okay. when I was, ooh, cracky, uh, 27 or 28 or something, um, and stayed there for five years working as a lawyer, um, which then kind of leads into the next phase of my story, which was I, I met uh, a, a guy called Tristan Forster, who'd been a, a Gurkha officer in the British Army. Believe me, this is, there, is a, there is a story behind this. And Tristan and his uh, his sort of um, you know, his, his his friends and his, his his comrades had left the army and were working in Iraq and Afghanistan um, in the private security business. Okay, he was actually Nepalese. No, he was a uh, he was a Brit. Um, okay. but you know, as is the way with the Gurkhas, uh, at least historically, and I think to some extent still now. Uh, you typically have um, kind of, you know, British officers who go to Sandhurst who then end up being assigned to the Gurkhas okay. and, and taking leadership You're doing positions. Doing recruiting in, and things like that. Well, they, they they become they become company commanders and whatever. They go to Nepal. They learn how to speak Nepalese and they become the leaders of the sort of the Gurkha battalions. So, okay. Yeah. So anyway, he, we we got talking and he explained to me some of the challenges he was seeing in Iraq. Which I mean, obviously, then it was there was a war zone, right? It was there was a lot of really really bad stuff going on um, across the board. But one of the things that was particularly exercising him was this idea that a lot of his former Gurkha soldiers had been um, had had left the army and then okay. gone gone back into Iraq in the private security game as he had, but the, the Nepalese. Uh, guys were often being quite badly exploited financially on that journey. So they were having to pay quite large fees to access that work. Mm -hmm. um, and whilst they could often look after themselves, it became quite clear quite quickly that that process of what we would now understand as bonded labor or debt bondage yeah. was absolutely the business model that pervaded right the way across, particularly South Asia, most of East Africa, and the Gulf. So if you're a migrant worker looking for work in that area, you are very likely to have to pay a very significant amount of money for your job. Mm -hmm. So Tristan and I got talking about this, um, along with Tristan's brother, Nick, and, and, and others. And we, we, we looked at whether there was any sort of legal or political pressure we could try and bring to bear to, to raise this issue. Because it seemed like an obvious one of you know corruption and, and and intimidation and malpractice and all that sort of stuff, 
but of course there was a there was a war going on. In fact, there were two wars going on, and so there wasn't much interest in you know trying to protect migrant workers. So it, we, in a fit of sort of naivety, we thought we would set up what I think was the world's first dedicated commercial ethical recruitment service, dedicated initially for Me- Nepalese security workers, but okay. then it broadened out to. You know other other you know facilities management, engineering, oil and gas, um, and now operates in in several countries around the world. And, and that model of what's sometimes known as the employer pays model or the fair recruitment model uh, has now been sort of widely adopted within you know the UN bodies, the ILO. Um, it's you know we we won a UN award for that work in 2013. Okay. Um, but all the way through, you know, I spend a lot of time working in uh, Iraq, in Afghanistan, in uh, East Asia, South Asia, East Africa, and the Gulf, and across across everywhere for many years. Um, but I didn't really feel like I understood the problem well enough, even mm. though we'd, we'd we'd been the ones at the coalface of really kind of under you know, getting under the skin of it. Yeah. So that eventually led me to I set, I set up a law firm to advise on this stuff. Um, but again, I still felt like I was slightly freestyling it. So I ended up eventually, uh, when I turned 40, coming back to the UK to uh, do my PhD, which was in business and human rights and with a specific focus on sustainable procurement and human rights uh, and business and human rights. So that, having done that, I ended up then eventually finding my way to, to Maplecroft. So that's the sort of potted history. There's, there's also some, some, some interesting chat about music in there somewhere, but I've, I've glossed over that a bit. Well, we, we can go back to that. Yeah, so right. your PhD was... Yeah, no, where, well, that was yeah. at King's. Yeah. Okay. I mean, it's interesting that you mentioned a lot about the Gurkhas stuff because, of course, some of that's issues with regard to Gurkhas and how they've been treated is still very prevalent today with their impeachment rights. Yeah. I mean, um, what's yeah. your view on that? I mean, that's, that is a, that's an interesting one. And the, the history of that is, is, quite, is quite nuanced. And I, I mean, I don't really know enough about it in depth to offer too much of an opinion. I know, I know a reasonable amount, but it, this is one of those areas that you've really got to nail it, right? Mm. And I don't want to offend anyone. But my understanding of it essentially is this. So before Hong Kong was returned, this sounds like a bit of a non sequitur here, but before Hong Kong was returned to the Chinese in, in 1997, before that deal was done. Yeah, um, the 100 year lease. Right, exactly. The Gurkhas essentially were recruited out of Nepal and worked out of Hong Kong. And so when they finished their, their tours of, of, of duty with the UK, the British Army, they went back to Nepal. And there was never any question that they would settle in the UK. Mm-hmm. And so their pensions were set at levels that were appropriate for, for, for their Nepal. country. Right. So then what happened after 97 is that the, the Gurkhas were headquartered in the UK, in Catterick, and in, 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 various other, in various other places. And so you, you, you had uh, this reasonable expectation that they would retire into the UK. Yeah. So there was this period of time when, when Nepali, the, the, they, were, they were retiring as ex-Gurkhas, but still only being paid Nepalese-rated pensions, even though they were living in the UK. Okay. That was obviously wrong. And so that was fixed quite quickly. Then there was a second fight about uh, the people who had retired before 97, who were back in Nepal, and to whether at what extent they should also be paid UK-rated pensions, even though they were in Nepal. Okay. And so that, and my understanding is that that fight has also essentially been fixed in in, in their favour, as it should be. I mean, these are incredibly brave um, soldiers who have given given their lives in many cases to to, to the British Army. So, yes, I, you know, I, 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 I was just it was interesting because there will be listeners here. I mean, I'm sure that uh, we'll try and get Joanna Lumley as a really a big <laughs> supporter of this particular area yeah. as well to. Um, to, to maybe add comment can I, can, on it. Can I just add that? I mean, I, I, I talked about FSI as a as an international business. We also have a UK business as right. FSI, which is 
which very much does focus on facilities management and security and soft services. So that, that's within your company. Yeah, within within. Well, so when I talk about my company, I'm talking about, I'm talking about FSI. I no longer have an, a, a, an executive role at FSI. Right. I'm still a, a small shareholder. But um, so, but that company is uh, UK based, and we employ. Uh, quite a large number of ex-Gurkhas okay. who are fantastic people who, who who provide amazing service. So a shout out to FSI Europe and to Dan O'Donnell and his team. They do they do amazing work. Um, and uh, yeah, they, they're, they're an absolute example to us all in terms of their their, uh, their professionalism. Great. I mean, I mean, it's a really exciting journey. And I think it's comforting, certainly for some of our listeners to almost realize that you left school at 16 but then suddenly had this kickstart of an of academia of which you've gone to at great lengths with so clearly something happened yeah um yeah. to to for you to you know do multiple degrees and stuff and multiple sort of qualifications and also uh, play a hand at the uh, drums as well i believe yeah yeah i'll come to that in a second i mean i mean it, i'm really passionate about this i think that um we we write people off far too early in this country, whether it's, you know, I know the 11 plus isn't really a thing much anymore, but, you know, we we sort of, we look to pigeonhole people through these rather arbitrary tests that we put them through, whether it's at 14, 16, 18, 21, whatever. Yes. And then we say, right, that's you done for the rest Correct. of your life. And I think that's an incredible waste of talent because I didn't realize until I was in my early 20s that I had a, a talent for academia. Mm. I didn't realize until I was well into my 30s that business and human rights was my calling. Mm. Um, you know, I, I, and, and I'm still learning now. I'm still taking whatever courses I can. I'm still looking to try and improve what I can. Mm. And also, I want to give back. So uh, just this weekend, I was ju- a judge at a young social enterprise competition okay. up in North London um, with uh, D- Dan Amrusi and his, his team. You know, because you know, I, I'm really passionate about trying to help and inspire younger people to think that, you know, whatever they start in life, that actually there, there, there's always an option. Mm. There's always an option to move forward. Um, and, you know, I, I really, I, I feel that very strongly. And, you know, I, when I was at King's doing my, my, my PhD, you know, I'd look around and there'd be people in their 60s and 70s who were doing degrees, you know, having retired. Mm. Uh, and I always had Im- immense respect for that because there's no need for them to do it. But no. they're doing it out of pure, you know, love of the subject and they, and they get so much out of it. And I think we need to think about lifelong learning in a much more holistic way than we've ever done. Definitely. Um, but on the drums point, do you want to make that? Yeah, well, <laughs> well, I know you're itching to talk about the drums point. So I, I think am. it's a really good one to say <laughs> that you've got a, a another side to your um, your brain, as it were, in terms of the creative side as well as uh, the academia side. Yeah, I mean, I, I said, it's, it's interesting that. I mean, I... Um, I don't know where it started. My, my brother played the drums when I, when I was very, very small. I have, I have a, an older brother and two older sisters. And uh, when I was, one of my earliest memories is my brother playing, playing the drums quite badly and my dad getting really annoyed about it. And then he sort of, he gave it up quite quickly. And then when I was about six or seven, I, I started picking it up and I think much to my parents' um, annoyance. But I, it turned out that I, it was something that I naturally was pretty good at um i don't i say that with a certain amount of modesty but um it you know i i got good at it quite quickly and so at the age of sort of 10 11 12 i got into bands and we were doing little tours and recording little you know albums and whatever um and then you know it it sort of spiraled i ended up doing you know okay on the kind of session scene in london as a drummer and then in you know, York, I got into a very good band there. And then, it, funnily enough, in Dubai, just at the point at which I thought, okay, this is, no, 
I'm going to have to you know, give up on my, on my rock star dreams uh, because Dubai is not the place you go if, if you're looking to start a music career, right? Um, and I was in a bar one night and got talking to some guys, and it turned out that they had a band. In fact, they not only had a band, they had a band that was on NTV, um, and they needed a drummer because their drummer just left. So okay. I ended up um, auditioning for them, and they got into that band, and on our third gig, we got signed to Sony. Uh, and put out an album and ended up opening on a stadium show for Guns N' Roses and then for... So what Maroon. was the al- album called? Empires. The band is Juliana Down. If you go, I mean, the, I, th- I don't think the, I don't think the uh, album is still on Spotify, but there is a, one of our singles is still on Spotify and um, the videos are still on YouTube. But So there's a video of us opening up for Maroon 5 uh, in, on there. And yeah, so that was great fun. We did that for, you know, for... Th- two or three years or actually more than that um in dubai and i still play in fact i was playing last weekend with my my covers band here in london and uh it's just it's one of those things that i play the piano as well but i mean i don't do these things because i'm trying to achieve anything but because they're amazing things to do in and of themselves and mm. they give, it's always given me a great deal of satisfaction um you know i some of the best people i know are musicians right you know and they're they're the the hardest working most honest uh, people I know because they just they're doing it for for the love of it. I, I've never met many musicians mm. that I don't like. You know, they they tend to be good good sorts. I mean, it's a, it's just a very interesting sort of a um, a, a side. I, I, would, I don't want to be rude, but it's a it's a sideline to your career. Sure, yeah. but it's something that you actually get a lot of satisfaction out of. Just. Moving on to my second question. Um, is this only the uh, second question? Is, <laughs> is, is just, I um, wanted to get a little bit of an understanding. What, what is it you like about your role that you're doing at the moment? Um, well, it's awesome. I mean, I suppose it, um, I can sort of break that down into several things. So for a start, I have a great team. Right? Okay. Really, really fantastic How big team. is your team? So there's 120 of us at Maplecroft, thereabouts. Okay. Um, the sustainable procurement and human rights team is only eight of us. Okay, but uh, they're you know we we pack a pretty good punch across that, um, and we're geographically spread out a bit. Um, the team here in London is sort of thirty or forty of us in a in, in a lovely lovely office in, in Bishopsgate. Uh, so the team's great, and I think that's often underestimated because you go in every day and you meet people you like and you get on with, and they're unbelievably smart. You know, these are people who make you know I. I I, I'm nowhere near some of these guys in terms of their capabilities, whether it's from computer science or environmental science, mm-hmm. you know, whatever. They, they're just they're just awesome. So there's all of that. The team's great. Um, the the subject matter is just fascinating. So we, we you know we've moved from a space where I when, when I started getting involved in the business and human rights world 15, 16 years ago, um, we would get what I might euphemistically call a polite audience for our, 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 you know, our offering. People would say yes, 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 and nod, and then sort of carry on as usual. And we kept saying to people that there will come a point when the law will change and the commercial norms will change. And you know, you'll, be, you'll be required to think about yeah. sustainability in a much more kind of holistic way. That moment has arrived, and it's unbelievably satisfying because we're seeing the laws change at great speed. We're seeing commercial norms changing at great speed. So being at the sort of cutting edge of all of that, um, with a deep history in it, with an understanding of what business and human rights law and human rights and environmental due diligence stuff is all about, is fantastic. So there's the there's the sort of being in the in the substantive part of it, okay. and then there's the kind of nuts and bolts of my day job, which 
you know, I get to do you know, webinars and podcasts and, and speeches and, you know, uh, all that kind of really good outreach stuff, which I love. Um, I also get to advise, you know, still in kind of a quasi-legal way around a lot of, a lot of what we do. So still that intellectual challenge is still there. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, yeah, there's just... We think about the intersection of all of the things that we think about politics, okay. economics, law, you know, environmental science, you know, human rights, procurement. All of this stuff is just intellectually really challenging. And every day there's the new problem. You know, we have clients all over the world. Some of the biggest clients, uh, companies in the world are our clients and, you know, trying to help them fix their problems or get better at what they're doing mm. and and all of the kind of uh, intersectional issues that that, that that involves is just a fantastic challenge so every day you're kind but of the, yeah. the only thing i would say and this is you know, it's a, okay it's a throwaway comment from a business development person but you don't really have any kpis there though do you we do actually. I mean, so it doesn't matter if you don't achieve it. It's just like you're giving a bit of bad advice. No, I don't think that's so. so I think there's several KPIs that we have. So obviously, internally, we're looking at our own commercial performance. Okay. And we're, you know, we're very, we, we're, our parent company, Verisk in the US, um, you know, is very keen on us understanding in detail exactly how we allocate our time and what we're doing. So there's, there's an internal efficiency bit that is definitely a KPI from our perspective. Yeah. Um, you know, we ha- we're absolutely passionate about making sure our clients are, are not just happy with our service, but delighted with our service. And we measure that. Mm. And so understanding exactly what we're doing, when, we, you know, when we've made a mistake, we, we want to learn, we want to get better at it. Um, so, you know, and, and, and actually um, the, the product delivery from our perspective, you know, whether it's you know, risk, risk assessments, impact assessments, you know, environmental science assessments, this stuff is really you know, high quality mm-hmm. stuff. Mm-hmm. And so and we're benchmarking ourselves all the time against you know, our competitors, making sure that we're, we're absolutely on the money where we need Do to. Do you be. have a lot of competitors? Um, yes and no. So yes, in as much as there's lots of people out there offering their consultancy service, but yeah. um, and, and in that sense, you know, we know we're just we're one of many. But our our data set is unique. Okay. So no one else has the data that we have in the depth and the breadth and the granularity that we have. Okay. Um, so in that sense, we offer a fairly sort of unique service. But the fact that we've got both right. the data and the advisory is again unique. Um, you know, it, it makes us more expensive than some of our rivals because it's you know, if, if someone is offering just a sort of pure consultancy play yeah. and they're getting their data from the internet, you can do that much cheaper than maintaining the sort of data set that we have. I mean, it was interesting. You, you, you say you're slightly, maybe slightly more expensive and stuff like that, but it's sort of. Uh, I would ask the question. You've got some sort of swanky offices mm-hmm. in Bishopsgate. Right. Is that a sustainable office? Yeah, it's brand new. So it's the one. It's, it's, so does that mean it's sustainable? Yeah, absolutely. Because everything new is sustainable, right? No, I mean uh, it's. I mean it. I don't know. I mean, this, I'm did not, you check? Yeah, well, we did actually. So we the, there are all kinds of elements. This is twenty two Bishopsgate, the, the tallest of the towers. I know the, yeah. that. Yeah, uh, what that the multiplex very one. big, very big building. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, Taking airspace. Yeah, right. And <laughs> there are lots of um, really out things into the atmosphere. Fumes in the atmosphere. Yeah, I mean, I, we've got to work somewhere, right? But I mean, the the you know there are lots of ways in which you know we're constantly being told that the the, the building is sort of super high performance and the rest of it. So you know we ultimately you know we are one part of the various business unit which mm-hmm. which takes we have the 27th floor of that office uh, Maplecroft is 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 one sort of corner of that um and so just a, like a little a little corner of that big 
swanky building. Little corner of the big space. swanky building, exactly right. That's us. Okay. Yeah. I just, it was just interesting to know because obviously there are organisations and we all talk about sustainability and, mm. and I really want to sort of like push under the stone a little sure. bit and just see, you know, how far does that stretch back in your organisation from, yeah. you know, the ordering of a paperclip to, you know, having a big swanky office in Bishopsgate. So I just want to just put it out there really. We don't all. print paper, no. <laughs> okay. Um, so just a little bit. So what? If you were to say someone, you're in a, you're in a very, very unique sector mm. and you're saying to a new person that's kind of gone up through this the, and, and gone up through a si- fairly similar route to you, what sort of skill sets are required to do your job? Really good question. So I think in no particular order, um, real curiosity about okay. the world. Um, you've got to be thinking in a very interconnected way. Okay. So silo thinking is not not good. Uh, you've got to be. You've got to understand. So just to give a little example, right? Um, it, you've got to understand that if the rains fail in uh, Burkina Faso, right? Yeah. That, that might have an immediate because eighty percent of the, of the country is entirely reliant on, on agriculture. That will have potentially an immediate impact on migration into the into into a local into some of the other countries in the area, yeah. but potentially across even into Europe. Um, that then has a politically destabilizing impact, which then potentially ushers in more populism. And so there, there's there's a huge overconnection between or interconnection between um, the politics of it, the economics of it, the climate issues. Uh, you know, deforestation and, and, and sort of degradation of soil and biodiversity and all of these issues kind of overset, uh, overlap and intersect. Mm-hmm. So the, I'd say the first thing, be curious about the world and understand that these complex issues are complex and they are in, they're intersectional and they are cascading, cascading risk. Okay, that's the first thing. Okay. Um, curiosity. Secondly, I would say... Um, I put curiosity as your first one, and yeah. interconnectivity is your second. I mean, yeah, okay, fair enough. Um, so third, I would Sorry. say, um, I mean, hard work's not really a particularly interesting one because everyone works hard, right? But, I mean, I think you've got to be, um, you know. What about got, levels of, con- uh, and an understanding of the levels of con- of corruption in certain countries? Well, yeah, I mean, like I, think, that. I, and, I mean, that's obviously curiosity as well. well. I would put that into the intersectional risk. Okay. So, I mean, everything, you know, I, I could take you through. We have 185 something risk issues in our in our data set, right? Okay. And they run everything from forced labor and bonded labor, all that sort of the, the labor rights stuff through, through, through human rights and sexual minorities issues, all the way through to environmental issues and governance issues and political political issues so you know understanding all of that is there's a certain complexity to that yeah right so that that's definitely there otherwise i mean i would say interpersonal skills the ability to talk to clients in a language they understand okay and that means different things to different people because i was in stockholm and copenhagen two weeks ago talking to our nordic clients right and that requires a particular vocabulary uh, i don't mean i mean literally I, I mean i mean you've got to be able to you're talking to them in a language that they can uh, they can buy into from a commercial perspective, from a legal perspective, from a kind of you know a sustainability and ethical perspective. And then, then you know you go to Houston and you talk to some energy clients. You're having a very different conversation yes. in a very different language. Um, so you know, and and then you know, then again, you're talking to Australian clients, or you're talking to clients in Asia Pacific. That that's that's really interesting. And trying to trying to um, uh, steer your uh, your thought processes around the obstacles that, that might 
you know, sort of come your way from those cultural differences is, is quite a, quite an important thing. Okay. So that's definitely something. Um, I'll give you one more. One more. Okay. Uh, do, 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 one more. One more. One more. Um, hmm. Um, so I had curiosity, interconnectivity, yeah. cultural um, understanding, I would put it here. Yeah. Um, is teamwork okay? I mean, because actually everything we do relies I'll on give you that. teamwork. Yeah. Okay. How about that? And so you're talking to someone new uh, uh, who wants to come into an industry of procurement, sustainability, and, yep. and all of that. What, what would you say to them uh, to, when they're starting their career off? How can I be you? Okay, so I mean, first of all, you question whether you want to be, but I mean, let's say, let's say you do. Okay, right? Let's say you want a career in sustainability. Well, good on you, because that's that's exactly what we need. We need more people who are thinking about sustainability in a holistic way and thinking about how companies can be more sustainable. Because one of the key elements of the United Nations Guiding Principles on Business and Human Rights is the business um, respect for human rights, and that is an absolutely core foundational element of what we're doing. So great. Let's so first of all celebrated fantastic good you're doing it um you know read widely um but it's, you know don't get involved in social media um you know read read the economist read uh you know chatham house's magazine uh, go to as many lectures as you can uh, un, you know read books about political economy and think about the kind of uh, the complexities of the world that will be a massive help um uh, then you know i would make as many uh friends as you can with people like me, you know, uh, not necessarily me, but, you know, look up, uh, you know, use LinkedIn uh, and, yeah. and think about who's doing the kind of jobs that sound cool to you. And, and maybe they're 20 years older than you, but that's, that's okay. That gives mm. you something to shoot for. And then look at their, look at what, what, where they've been. Think about what they studied. Think about where they've worked, how they got to their, to their journey. Now, you know, everyone will have their own journey, right? Mm. And, and particularly now that we the, the pace of change that we're seeing at the moment with AI uh, and machine learning and all of that sort of stuff coming in um, and, you know, the, the world shifting on its e sort of economic axis in terms of the relationship between China and the US and all the rest of it, there's, there's just a ton of stuff going on that you've got to be thinking about. And so, um, but what I would say is a career in sustainability is, I think, is always going to be a good thing because what we mean by sustainability is always evolving. Um, and it's becoming more interesting in many ways because we're, we are understanding that companies, you know, in, in the commercial sector, and this also applies to the, the government sector, but just think about the commercial sector. Right? Companies have such a massive role uh, because of their footprint, their, their, their supply chain footprint, their operational footprint. You know, if they can improve their environmental performance by 10 or 15%, mm. um, and everyone does that, that's a collective, that's a massive step forward. Definitely. So, so it's, a, it, it's a great industry to be in. Um, go find out you know, who's who's doing the job you want in 20 years and then retrofit what you think you need to be doing. Don't worry too much about university and the rest of it. Yes, great to get a good degree and all of that kind of stuff. But when I'm looking for someone you know, to come and work for me, I'm looking for someone who's got spark, who's got enthusiasm, who's got you know, a restless intellect. Mm. And I don't much care whether they have a 2-1 in law from Leeds or a first in you know, PPE from Oxford. It doesn't bother me. What bothers me is whether this is a, someone who's going to fit with our ethos, who is you know, hardworking and committed 
and kind and you know, wants to work as part of a team. That's what, that's what gets me up. Okay, thank you for that. I mean, what I will say is you're probably going to get an enormous amount of uh, LinkedIn connections <laughs> that uh, will They're very connect welcome. with you. They're very welcome. Um, so going on to a little bit more granular detail here, how uh, can companies balance the need for profit uh, with a commitment to respecting human rights in their procurement process? Yeah, it's a really big question because, um, you know, when we think about sustainability, financial sustainability is a key part of that, right? No yep. one is expecting companies to put themselves out of business in pursuit of sustainability. It'd be self-defeating. So we have to balance the need for um, for a, a, you know, making a reasonable profit with ensuring that your footprint is as light as possible environmentally and that you're respecting uh, workers' rights and human rights more broadly. Now, that's not just a nice to have anymore. Now, this is a critical part of legal compliance mm -hmm. and increasingly a business norm that everyone is expected to, to, to hit. Yeah. So, you know, balancing those things is, is, is exactly the conversation that's going on um, with, in boardrooms all over the place because they're saying, you know, to what extent can we afford to invest in this or that innovation in terms of cleaning up our supply chain? But there's also another part of that conversation, which is, to what extent can we not afford it? Because actually, if we don't go down this road, and our competitors do, um, A, we're at risk now of being fined by regulators who are breathing down our necks about this. And, and also, you know, we know that young people um, don't particularly want to go and work for you know, climate um, polluters. They don't want to work for companies who are involved in human rights abuses. They, you know, the best talent is going to go to those companies who are demonstrably um, ethical and sustainable. So actually being in that place is in your own self-interest now. And I think that there is a sort of short-term versus medium-term cost. I mean, long-term is the long-term, right? But short-term versus medium-cost debate here. And, and it may well be the case that in order to, to make the jump from an unsustainable business model to a sustainable or more sustainable business model, it will take some upfront capital. Mm. However, if you think about a three to five year return on that investment, you may very well be able to see a not just a sort of, um, you know, a kind of social return on your investment, but yeah. actually a financial return. Because, um, you know, you will end up selling more product. You know, we, uh, there's all sorts of really good examples of companies who are making it, uh, you know, doing brilliantly financially and commercially uh, because they're making a play of their sustainability. Mm -hmm. You know, and we're seeing it in the fashion industry, we're seeing it in, um, uh, fast-moving um, consumer goods. We're seeing it across uh, across the sort of commercial sector. I mean, it's it's interesting you said that. I mean, we are talking a lot of those ones. Probably examples are from the developed world. Um, but if I was to say, you know, with increasing pressure on companies to source sustainably, how do you think developing countries can effectively participate in uh, global supply chains without being at a dis disadvantage due to their limited resources infrastructure and things like that so yeah. you know they're, they're not on a they're not on an equal footing no well i mean there's, there's lots of there's lots of lots of parts to that question we could talk about that all night i mean one of the things that is increasingly part of the conversation that i'm involved in and that lots of other people are involved in is about the idea of fair contracting with your suppliers and so rather than thinking about your supply chain as sort of a, a you know a, a group of people to whom things are done and you know to on whom legal 
liability is placed and you know to whom you're trying uh, you're trying to sort of squeeze them as hard as possible actually you know if you think about them as partners in your success yeah. and, and you're facilitating that by you know upskilling them and and making sure that your your payment terms are are reasonable and in, 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 indeed as generous as they can be so it's fair trade fair trade exactly well that, that, that's certainly part of it but you've also got to bear in mind that this you know the competition that here is not just within you know, a, a particular company, a set of companies' supply chains. We've also got a sort of geopolitical competition going on between what's happening in China, for yeah. example, and what's happening in the US and the European Union. And those regulators are having an impact on those kinds of trade patterns. And the Chinese in particular are looking at the moment to get into uh, particularly mineral-rich or, or, or resource-rich countries in the global south yeah. and impose their rules on what those supply chains look like. And it, actually, that can be that initially looks quite superficially attractive sometimes, particularly to kleptocratic governments who might be in, in, in charge there. Mm. But from a workers' rights perspective, from a human rights perspective, from an environmental perspective, it tends to be catastrophic. Yes. So um, actually, we need a well, really... it's an imperialist approach. Well, it is, and it's a, it, it, it's a debt trading approach, right, and all sorts of other ways. But, you know, we need to have a much more grown-up conversation about what we, as... Uh, the sort of industrialized West, if you want to call it that, um, you know, what we think is a reasonable way to do business with companies in the global South. We need to be much more partnership focused and we need to try, we do much better at articulating the benefits of that kind of mutually beneficial trade mm -hmm. and exposing some of the harmful trading practices that. I mean, I don't want to demonize China, but they're, they're, they're particularly pernicious in some of this stuff. Mm. Um, and now, you know, obviously, we don't yet know where the, the US-China trade war is going to land, but make no mistake, it's, it's underway. Mm. You know, if you think about the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act that was passed in the United States um, 18 months ago, you know, that's having a massive impact on things like solar panel yeah. um, uh, uh, imports into the US. Uh, China has re retaliated with its anti-foreign sanctions law. The, 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 the US has retaliated again with with the Inflation Reduction Act, which is essentially a, an invitation to reshoring you know, massive amounts of supply chains. And things like that are actually increasingly part of the conversation that we're having in mm. places like Maplecroft because uh, companies are saying, well, what do we do about the fact that we're now caught between these massive regulatory superpowers who are essentially playing a game of tit for tat? Mm. Um, and, and the US can afford to do much of what it's doing because it's the global reserve currency and because it has you know, this sort of power. Uh, and, and it's effectively playing the game that was starting to play the game that the Chinese have been playing for 30 years. Mm. And they captured a lot of the renewable energy market, for example, and solar and wind, because yeah. they have been doing that sort of stuff for a long time. So and how does that impact companies? Well, companies are sort of caught in the middle because yeah. they're being told it's your job to police your supply chains, but you know, you're now caught between the US regulatory regimes, the European regulatory regimes, the Chinese regulatory regimes, and now you've got all of these suppliers in sub-Saharan Africa or in parts of Southeast Asia who are themselves sort of looking both ways and trying to understand where their bread is buttered. Yeah. Right. So there's a, there's, there's a lot going on here at kind of lots of different levels and understanding how all that fits together and how it applies to commercial policy and decisions in the C-suite, that's the trick. That's, mm. that's, that's the value that we we try to bring to our clients. Mm. I mean, it, it, I do feel a little bit that the fair contracting with clients is a little bit of a halfway house um, before rather than actually going to those um, third world countries and actually, you know, influencing the labor laws and the labor things, you know, at, at source. 
Um, yeah, although, I mean, so uh, interestingly, we, we at Maplecroft, we have uh, a, a sort of methodologically um, common approach to how we look at all of our human rights indexes, for okay. example. We have, we have 30, 31 of them. And we look at um, uh, structure, process, and outcome. As, as, a, as a tripartite way of looking at structure is the law, effectively. The, yeah. the, uh, how has a country imported the ILO standards or, you know, whatever it is, that, uh, and, and, and they're scored against what they've done. But that's only 15% of our, the weighted score for us. 35% is, is process, which is, in other words, how are those laws being implemented? You know, to what extent are the, are the law enforcement uh, agencies corrupt? Do they have a national human rights institution? That sort of thing. Okay. And then the 50% of the score is outcomes. So what's actually happening? And that's web scraped events data. It is reports from governments, et cetera. Now, the, the, what, the reason I'm telling you that is if you go and look at our country risk scores, for mm -hmm. example, you can see at a glance exactly w which countries have done what from a legal perspective. Okay. And you'd be really surprised. Uh, you know, for example, in Nepal, in Nepal in 2007, they passed something called the Foreign Employment Act. It's a really, really good piece of legislation. I couldn't do much better myself if I was sitting down running it from scratch in terms of protecting migrant workers. Okay. The problem is not, the, is not in, the, in the structure, it's in the process. It's in the fact that it's not so, implemented properly. So getting back to this human rights index, yeah. get my head around this and yeah. stuff. Each country in the world, you say, has a human rights index or, or could be assigned a, a human we rights We have 198. Index. Okay, yeah. so where does the UK sit? On what? On the human rights index. Uh, well, so that you need to break that down. We, uh, we need to look at all 31. So, so um, the we, UK... Okay, uh, out of yeah. the 31, is it scored like if I've got 30, yeah, it's, I've I mean, done really well? It's, um, it's not... It's not scoring too badly across the board. I mean, where it's it's deteriorating, as it has been in the last sort of four or five years, okay. on, on some some measures, such as is in well, in, in if you think about human rights generally speaking. Now we picked up obviously the, the Modern Slavery Act was passed in 2015, which saw a sort of bump in the score. Mm -hmm. um, but the the sort of anti-migrant rhetoric that has been very prevalent from the Home Office over the course of the last four or five years has caused um, things the score to, to, to go down. The, the score to go down a bit. Um, you know, but it, it's difficult to. To talk about you know, a single country because I could I could if I sat there with my computer show you exactly what the UK looks like in aggregate across all of all of the indices we have but actually doesn't tell you very much okay. because what you want to do is you want to drill into a specific set of issues but I could I could show you on labour rights for example or on uh, you know right the sexual minority rights for example actually UK scores very well on that uh, certainly you know if you compare it to, to but other on labour well. rights then yeah. if we were to say that what would you I mean I'm I'm, I'm putting you on the spot because yeah. obviously you haven't got the, the data to hand. I don't. Really. How would we sit on that? Uh, generally, I mean, in terms of structure, in other words, the laws that have been passed, um, good because you know the UK has traditionally been an exemplar of a decent labour practice, at least since the nineties. Okay. Um, and a minimum wage coming in, etc. So the UK scores quite well in terms of structure. Process again, you know, the police force. Uh, people complain about the police in this country, but actually, you know, it's relatively you know, uh, uncorrupt, and it's you know the, the well, there's a few, um, I think, well, I mean, a few issues that yeah, well, corrupt yeah, up quite, rather I, but that's why I use the term relatively. So, yeah. But you know, if you can certainly compare it to many other parts of the world, yeah. um, uh, you know, the court system is transparent and you know underfunded, sure, but you know, is 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 well functioning. So there's lots of things about structure and process that are very good. The outcomes indicator. Uh, fluctuates because, of course, that's largely driven by events, and so that's much more current. Uh, so every year, you know, we get reports from you know places like uh, Freedom House and you know the U.S. government and uh, uh, Amnesty and Human Rights Watch or whatever, in addition to web scraped or, or unstructured data, which takes 
um, events sort of straight into the system. And that, that, that follows the trends much more closely. Mm-hmm. And, and there has been, unfortunately, a very significant downgrade in the way that the British government has been approaching human rights issues since 2016, really, since, I mean, I'm not pinning it on Brexit particularly, but the governments that we've had in place since then Mm. have shown a marked um, lack of respect for human rights in many cases. And so, you know, we see, you know, I have to be quite careful. If I say I'm a human rights lawyer, which technically I am, right, if I say that in the wrong context, I'm going to get my head kicked in. Because people, people well, think, I mean, you do do that, advisory stuff for the government, so maybe that it might be something that they uh, appoint you for doing <laughs> um, more work. Well, I, I, I noticed that depends the, on which government, of course, well, gets in next that, time. That's true. I mean, the, I mean, it's worth noting that the the um, the, the UK government's anti-slavery commissioner. There's only been two. Uh, the first was, was Kevin Highland, the second was um, uh, Sarah. Um, uh, I don't know if Sarah is really embarrassing, but um, uh, so um, Sarah Thornton. Uh, she hasn't been replaced. So she retired or she left the job um, 18 months ago or so, and the government hasn't replaced her, which tells you kind of how they see that role. Okay. Um, and if you think about the way that the Home Office has been essentially weaponizing the migrant crisis over the course of the last couple of years, this is really poor stuff from a human rights perspective. But it's also poor from a cleaning point of view with uh, Hawkey is that, we, yeah. you know, we, we actively encourage um, to have uh, a, a diverse uh, populace within our, our, our organisation. And so migrants are, are a key part of our workforce. And, you know, Britain has been a very open economy for 40 years now, for 40, 50 years. And, and we built, a, you know, largely because of our membership of the European Union, but also just because we are typically a very open, uh, historically very open economy. Um, you know, finance plays a big role. But, you know, we have, we've always accepted that there will be a sort of ebb and flow of migration as needed by the economy. And, of course, migration is a great sign. Uh, you know, if you have a lot of inward migration, it's because there are jobs. And there is this, this rather... Um, so I, I, I'm very interested in, in political narrative because I think political narrative can be incredibly powerful. And one of the... There's two political narratives I'm going to refer to very quickly, if I may. The first was what's sometimes called the household fallacy, okay. which was put about by Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan in the 1980s, which was basically that, that a government needs to be run in, on along similar lines to that of a household. Correct. In other words, you cannot spend more than you earn on that sort of thing. Now, that's just economically illiterate, right? But it's a very good story to tell to people because it feels instinctively true, despite the fact that it's not, right? The other, the other story that we've, we've allowed to sort of gain currency over the years is this idea that if you allow more people to come into a country, that there's a set number of jobs and therefore the incomers will be taking the jobs of people who are here. This sort of, um, it's, it's a Malthusian or David Ricardin uh, idea of, of a labour lump. In other words, there are, there's a set number of jobs, more people come in, fewer jobs for those already here. It's nonsense. It's complete nonsense. It ultimately, people, uh, more people come into a society, that means the pie grows. In other words, there's just a bigger pie for everybody. Now, that, that doesn't mean to say that some people may not necessarily lose out in the short term and in some sectors. That can be, that can be true. But over time, all of the evidence tells us that migration, it, it, inward migration, is good for an economy. Correct. I mean, given, uh, I mean, one of the key parts of Malthusian population checks was that people die. We have an aging population. Right, exactly. So I, I, would, I would agree with you. Oh, no, just one other thing. You know, if you ask people, who say, oh, migration's too high, right? Then you sit them down, okay, right, who, who of these people would you, would you remove? 
And you go, oh, care workers? No, 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 they, they can stay. Uh, fruit pickers? No, no, we need fruit pickers. Uh, train drivers? Oh, no, 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 no. And you go through the list, and eventually everyone says, no, no, we need all those people. And you go, well, who are you going to get and rid cleaners. of? And cleaners. Oh, cleaners, exactly. Right? Who are you going to get rid of? And, and then it's this typical thing of um, it's just sort of it's the other people. Oh, it's not, you know, I'm not racist, you know, but it's, it, it's this sort of thing of, we want we want these numbers to come down, but we can't say why, and we can't say who we'd get rid of, uh, because frankly, this economy, this country, has gotten so used to um, you know the, the 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 ebb and flow of migration that to suddenly cut it off and then say, all right, we need British people to train to work in the fields or whatever it is that the, the government's currently saying is is just. I mean, A, it's, it's nonsense. All that's going to happen is that fruit is going to end up rotting in the fields, which is exactly what is happening. But also, you know, people don't necessarily want to do those jobs, and they shouldn't have to. They, they, you know, uh, Britain has become a high, relatively high-skilled service economy. Um, and for better or for worse, that means that a lot of the other jobs, you know, the caring jobs, the cleaning jobs, they have typically been outsourced, if you like, to, to the migrant worker population who actually want to do those jobs. They're coming here to do those jobs because it's something that, you know, it offers a better outcome for them than, than where they, they've been before. So, so, so anyway. Go, going, I mean, we could talk all night, um, but uh, going into other, some other things that I wanted to talk about, really going on to um, the procurement of services and sure. goods and things. And so how would you balance cost effectiveness with quality when procuring goods and services uh, for, say, facilities management? It's quite specific. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm not sure. I, know, I, I, I don't think I have a particularly good answer to that. Cost effectiveness and quality. So, cost versus quality is always the, the big thing, right? So, how cost do you... effectiveness with quality yeah. when procuring goods or services in in let's say a facilities management side. So, a building and stuff will have a services catering and X Y Z in it sure. and stuff. So, um, how in your view? I, don't, I, I mean, I, I really don't know. I mean, I, I'm, I like to think that I, I'm, I'll have a go at questions that I don't really know about. That's when I sort of feel like, you know, you... You, you can pass. No, let's just have... I mean, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not a sort of regular procurement professional in that regard. I don't, I don't deal with facilities management staff very much. I don't deal with regular procurement. I'm more in sustainable... But it's just interesting stuff. to know, you know, you are a, a specialist in a very specific field sure. and it's very specific yeah. and obviously you would touch a, I'm not suggesting you're a subject matter expert in FM yeah however you are a subject matter expert in procurement in a sustainable way so yeah. there, there will be links yeah of course there are and you know I, I think you know, the, the intersection of, of, of price and quality and security of supply and all that sort of stuff is 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 a constant right and and it's difficult to to get the balance right you know your accountants will always be telling you one thing your lawyers would be telling you another thing um ultimately the the tone i mean I'm, I'm being slightly abstract here but you know the the leadership team of a company is really the one that sets the tone for this stuff if they want to set a sustainable pathway for your procurement then they can do so they can set that tone and they can tell the mm -hmm. lawyers and the accountants that's that's you, what's going to happen do you think your um your battle is is easier now than it was i think we're getting more of a hearing for sure and i think about I'm inclined to agree with you yeah i mean so i used to get thrown out of boardrooms you know when i go there and i pitch this <laughs> idea of of sustainability we just laugh at you right it's 15 20 years ago no one's interested now it's core business because partly because of the hard law you know let's let's yeah. not let's not get away from it you know i uh, 
much as I wish it wasn't true, the fact is that now that there are um, potentially quite serious fines attached to non-compliance, you have the attention of people that you didn't have before. But you've also, I think, seen a generational shift um, in yes. thinking. So, you know, and, and that's partly, you know, it may not necessarily be younger CEOs, but I think you've seen over the course of the last 10 years, certainly, a really marked um, change in attitude towards uh, environmental sustainability, particularly. Mm -hmm. I think that's very much the kind of number one issue, but also a recognition that businesses do have a role to play in, in, in wider society. And so I think that is, that's permeated into the C-suite quite significantly. Not in every case, but yeah. across the board, I think we're getting a much easier hearing than we used to. And, and you know, also we as service providers have upped our game as well. So we're no longer asking companies to jump through millions of hoops mm. to get you know, in, into the sustainability game. They come to people like us, we can give them really helpful dashboards and yeah. really good data that they can use for their reporting. And we can help them navigate these things so they end up not just with a more sustainable business, but okay. with a more efficient business as well. Okay. Um, good answer. Um, Do I win? <laughs> um, what, uh, James, I always ask this question to people, and you can see it however you see fit, as it were. Sure. What What is your um, gr uh, your biggest regret in your career to date? Oh, where do I start? Um, yeah, I mean, I try not to have regrets because you know I think well of all of the mistakes I've made, and boy, have I made some mistakes. You know, they, they are learning experiences, right? You learn from your mistakes far more than you do from your successes. So I try to take that attitude. Um, I, 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 give me, give me just you know, yeah, couple. I mean, or even one. Yeah, I, there have been times when I perhaps I've stayed in jobs I shouldn't necessarily have stayed in, or I have taken people at face value when I shouldn't have done, or whatever. And I'm not going to give examples, but you know, um, there have been times when I feel like I haven't, I, I've been too forgiving of some certain certain circumstances, uh, and I. You know, it's only when you get into a better situation right. than you then you sort of you realise actually how, how you know what that previous situation was like. So, you know, anyway, um, but there have been times when that's been, but very little to be honest. You know, I, I think about the journey that I've been on, and it's it's very easy when you sit looking back to kind of weave a narrative yeah. and to think about well, it's, I was always intended to get here. I mean none of my career was planned in any mm. meaningful way, right? I ended up where I am very largely as a result of chance and luck and a certain amount of hard work and, 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 and what have you. But, you know, I, I think, yeah, I mean, I, I don't regret really any of it. Um, there have been other things I've regretted, but sure, you know, I, yeah, I mean, I, I'm pretty happy with, with where I am now. Okay. And, uh, and yeah. so, and what would you say is your greatest achievements uh, to date in I mean, your career? Yeah, that's interesting. I, some, I do think about that a little bit, just be, not because I'm trying to think about, you know, applauders, but just about, I sometimes go back to my 20-year-old self. Okay. And I think about... Well, before you were starting studying. Exactly, right. And I think about that that young man who was desperately lost and and had no sense of... The world, um, or what the, or the just just that there was some possibility out there, right? Um, Someone must have sparked that possibility. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I can tell you the story if you like, but I mean, it's it, very quickly. I, I went to America when I was twenty, and I my father died when I was when I was in my early teens, and he left me a very very small amount of money, uh, which I took 
um, when I was 20 years old. And I, I didn't tell anyone really I was going. I went on my own. This is the days before mobile phones or anything. So I, I literally just went and got lost in America for, for six weeks or so. And that opened my eyes to the possibility of, of, of the world beyond, you know. And it also made me feel at once both completely insignificant because I was thousands of miles away from home. No one I knew, no one would have cared if I'd fallen off the side of a cliff, right? But, but also at the same time realizing that, okay, I don't have to live in the shadow of the life I had. I can go and create whatever I want. Because when I was in America, no one knew who I was. Mm. I could be whoever I wanted to be. I mean, what's interesting, know? James, is that, you know, as a result of a, you know, a dreadful family tragedy, um, it actually change your direction of where you wanted to be in a very positive way and that's probably a real legacy that your father has left for you yeah i, I mean I, I possibly i mean I, I think you know i think about my one of the I think, here's a regret for you so i regret the fact that i never got to meet my father as an adult and i think that you know as a, a particularly for for young men there is something about sort of lit, almost physically looking yes. your father in the eye uh, at that level, you know, and ha- you know, going to the pub with him or whatever it is, because it sort of marks that transition from childhood to adulthood to kind of, and you'll always be your, you know, you'll always be your, 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 your father's son, right? Yeah. But, but there is, I, I miss that, I, I miss that transition mm. and I, I, I regret that, but nothing okay. I can do about it. You know, it's one of those things. But I think the positives that have come out of it is, 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 is really quite significant here. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think I became a risk taker then. I think yes. I, I think I decided that there wasn't there wasn't much to lose. Well, losing yourself in America, quite a big continent, is quite something at that age, anyway. Easy to get lost. Um, yeah. Easy to get lost. So, what things finally um, in life it could be work, could be leisure that gives you greatest satisfaction and enjoyment? Uh, this is a, this is the bit where I get to talk about my lovely four month old daughter. So, um, okay. I I came to fatherhood somewhat later in life than, than many. Uh, I'm, I'm 49 now, which I, I, every time I say that out loud, it, it just sort of doesn't sound right. The words don't quite come out right. But anyway, I am. There's no doubt about it. Sounds um, worse at 50, trust me. Yeah, I know, I know. I've got that coming up next year. So um, anyway, so my daughter uh, is the greatest joy of my life alongside my lovely wife. And I am incredibly lucky uh, to have been blessed at this point uh, by such a, a, an enjoyable family. Um, and my, my, my wife is from Germany and she's from a most beautiful part of Southern Germany. Uh, her, her, her mum and dad were with us last week and, and we, we try and spend some time down there in the shadow of the Alps swimming in the, in the sea, uh, in the, in the, in the Bodensee, in the, in the, in the lake there. Uh, and I think about, you know, the, the, the joy that I get from that, that, those relationships and watching her grow every day. And, Great. Uh, you know, that's, that's just, that's the best thing. Thank you very much. I'm playing the drums. I'm playing, I was going to say, I'm playing the drums. Well, thank you very much, uh, James uh, Sinclair, Dr. James Sinclair, I should add. Um, well, thank you very much. That's our uh, 14th uh, episode of Wear Many Hats. Um, we hope that uh, you, our listeners, have found it interesting to listen to, as I have, uh, interviewing uh, James. Um We'd like you to thank you for taking the chair, and it's, uh, I think it's been both uh, thought-provoking, again, with another angle of, uh, of business, um, and we welcome the feedback from our listeners. So thank you once again, and tune in next time. Thanks for having me.